Today's scripture reading is from Luke 7, 1 through 10. Please read the highlighted verses with me. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion who had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Just want to thank Grace Sacramento for what you've already done for us as uh, we began our work in Reno. You helped us move out here. The good news is we actually got here. We had an accident where both our cars were totaled when we were towing in, uh, in uh, Icy Patch and uh, somewhere in those flat plains out there. <laughs> and uh, the Lord got us here safely. And uh, we're seeing the Lord do some good things in Reno. As you heard from the multimedia presentation, Reno's exploding, literally. Uh, they're building another gigafactory there in the future, so um, it, the, Reno's growing by about 7,500 people a year, and 60% uh, of those people make no profession of commitment to any kind of religion at all. So 30% of the people in Reno uh, make some type of religious commitment, 16% of that is Catholic, mainly Hispanic, and then everybody else is scattered around. And so, although there are a few Reformed witnesses there, we're all rather small and uh, kind of hidden <laughs> within the, the framework of the church, of the city. I want to introduce my wife, Christy Leonard, and um, she's here today. And I introduce her to you because church planting requires a partnership, uh, a pastor and his wife, that's a lot of hard work, uh, but she's been my life partner in ministry. We've uh, helped start a church in Homestead, Florida. We worked in France for 10 years among Muslims, seeing Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ as we ministered to them there. We came back, taught at Westminster Seminary. We started another church in Philadelphia. And now we're here in Reno, and I can tell you that uh, Christy does most of the hard lifting <laughs> in that task, and so I'm grateful for the impact she's had on the people in the church. And just to prove that to you, when we were having our goodbye service at uh, Crescent Valley Church at a dinner force, 
There was a long line of people waiting to speak to her and nobody was in line to speak to me. <laughs> and so I'm expecting that same kind of thing to happen in Reno. Now, I, I, I didn't want to tell Brad my scripture completely because we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 7, and Luke chapter 8. And I didn't think you wanted to read all that <laughs> in your service. But if you have your Bibles open, you want to open them to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, because there Jesus comes down from the mountain after he spent the night in prayer, and he chooses from his disciples 12 apostles. Now, this is a step up in their education in following Jesus Christ. The disciple is a learner, an apostle is one who is to be sent out. Now, just because Jesus has identified these people as apostles, they are not ready for apostleship yet. They're still in the training program uh, under Jesus's ministry. Now, here's the good news about reading your scripture. Whenever you read your scripture, you should put yourself in the story. And don't always put yourself in the good places in the story. You know, see yourself as uh, Simon the Pharisee or the uh, woman caught in adultery and things like that. But you get to put yourself in the story, and we put ourselves in the story with the disciples. We are apostles. Did you know that the church is apostolic? The church is apostolic for two reasons. First of all, the church is apostolic because we carry on the teachings that are passed down from our Lord to the apostles and are faithful to those teachings. You cannot be an apostolic church without being faithful to those teachings. At the same time, you cannot be an apostolic church unless you're faithful in the ministry to which God has called us, and that's to take the gospel to the world. And so we hold on to the teachings, and we engage ourselves in the ministry of propagating and building the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus has just appointed us as apostles. We now join him as he uh, takes us out in the ministry. Now, what's great about the, the teaching method of Jesus Christ, it's just not classroom instruction. He actually has a practicum in there, and we're going out in our first practicum with Jesus. And he's just preached to us in Luke chapter 6, our commencement address. And uh, we're probably looking at each other asking, you know, does Jesus really mean those things he said? Does he want us to actually do those things? You know, isn't he giving too hyperbole? Uh, doesn't, he, isn't he doesn't he tend to overstate things to make a point? Well, we're hoping he does that. And while we're arguing over uh, that point, we enter Capernaum. And what's that? We see that the a very important religious leaders are coming to us. And they're asking a question to Jesus about a Roman centurion who needs his help. Now, that's an important political figure. Now, Jesus hasn't asked us our opinion, but we're quick to give it to him. What should he do? If we are spiritually minded, like John, we might say, Jesus, we got to help people like this. You're going to say that uh, he has great faith in a few minutes. We know that he loves our people. He's generous uh, and he's humble. And so certainly these are the kind of people we've come to serve. If you're politically minded, you're going to say, Jesus, we need to help people like this. We need friends in high places. God may not be enough. This guy has power. We can call in that ship. We've got to help him. If you're Simon the Zealot, you say, burn this whole place to the ground. We want nothing to do with the Romans. <laughs> if you're 
uh, somebody like Judas and financially minded, you're saying, Jesus, don't let this one get away. You know, he built the Jews a synagogue. He can build us a synagogue. We can get out of this itinerant ministry. And you can't go around feeding multitudes on a few loaves and a few fishes. Didn't you find that funny? <laughs> well, Jesus is going to heal this man's servant, but it's not going to be for any of the reasons that I just suggested. Turn with me in your Bibles back to Luke chapter 6, verse 27. What's it say? Do you talk back to your... Do they talk back to you in church? No. <laughs> Behind your back. Okay, go ahead and say. <laughs> 627 says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Who were the enemies of the Jews at this time? The Romans. Now, this is one of the central commands in what Jesus tells us we must be if we're going to be his apostles. We must be willing to love our enemies. Why? Because at the heart of the gospel message is this, that God loved us while we were his enemies. Now, how will the world know that there is a God who loves his enemies if we, his followers, do not love our enemies? And so Jesus is living out on Monday the sermon he preached for us on Sunday. Now, this is very important. If we're going to have an impact on the world for Jesus Christ, maybe we should change the people that we're trying to evangelize. How many of you have dear family members, dear loved ones, dear friends who aren't Christians, and you just try to minister to them every day? You just pray for them. You want them to come to Christ. Say, Lord, reach these people for Christ. And what, what, what's happening in their lives? Nothing. They tell you to stop talking to you about this. So crumple up that list. And take out that list in the other pocket, your enemies list. And start trying to evangelize those people. Try to reach those people. Because that's what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. That if you want to have an impact on the world, love your enemies. And you're saying, John, I can't do that. Well, that's exactly the reason why we not only need to tell people the gospel, but we also what? Need the gospel. Now, here's what's exciting about when you quit trying to evangelize your family, friends, and loved ones and start trying to evangelize your enemies, guess who's going to notice the change in your life? Yeah, and they might actually come to Jesus Christ because of it. So the first person we meet on this practicum that Jesus has taken us out to is a Roman centurion. If you're taking notes, just draw a line horizontally across the page. Because we go from a Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7, the next person we meet is the widow at Nain. Now these two people, Luke does not want you to miss the point that he ties them together. He ties them together temporally in verse 11 by the phrase soon after this. He ties them together thematically with the use of the term worthy. You know, much is made of the centurion's worthiness. There's something worthy about the, the widow and that is the size of the crowd that is attending her son's funeral. Now, what I find interesting is this woman is leading her only son out to be buried. Jesus has compassion. Who do you think Jesus is thinking of as he sees that scene? His own mother. 
because he knows that this will be the scene of his death. But he also knows in performing this miracle that he's going to show that uh, he will rise as well. Now, what's interesting is that the only time you'll ever find these two people together is right here in the story. Because everything that's true about the one is not true about the other. They're actually on the extremes of humanity on a human scale. Everything one is, the other is not. Give me some ways these people are different. Man and woman. Power. He has great power. He says it and people do it. You know, the widow can't even get what she wants in the parable in Luke 18. Who said poor or poverty? He's wealthy. He can build synagogues. The widow puts her two mites into the offering because that's all she has. Widows are known for their poverty. Uh, what else? Ambition? Okay, he has a future. She has none, which she lost her only son. He is a Gentile. She is a Jew. Two extremes on a human scale. Now draw a second line. This is a very complicated outline, so pay attention. From the top of the page to the bottom of the page. How many lines do we now have on the page? Two lines. The third person we meet in Luke chapter 7 is who? John the Baptist. Jesus says of John the Baptist, of all those born among women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. He stands at the top of humanity when it comes to uh, religiosity, example of what everybody should be. He's at the very top of humanity. And then... As you draw that line down the page, it runs down the page like blood to the very bottom. And who's, who's in the last story in Luke chapter 7? The sinful woman. Thank you. The sinful woman. Now, I hate to say this, ladies, but it's just that way. A man is always at the height of humanity and a woman at the very bottom of humanity. A sinful woman. But in this case, there's one person just below that woman. You know who it is? A self-righteous man. <laughs> Behind every sinful woman, there's a self-righteous man. <laughs> now, this is what's interesting. What is Simon the Pharisee who's hosting this party that uh, th this woman comes in and washes Jesus' feet? What does he say? What does he think in his mind? He says, Jesus should have nothing to do with somebody like this. Now, what's he doing? He's passing judgment on her. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 37. What's it say there? Do not judge. Now, that doesn't mean you can't sit on a jury and decide whether someone's guilty or innocent. What this means is we do not decide in advance who is worthy or not worthy of God's grace. Besides, isn't Worthy grace and oxymoron. But far too often we want to decide who we should offer God's grace to and who we should not. But know this, the very point of God's grace is this, is that no one is exempt from it. Now, let's step back and look at Luke chapter 7. What do we see? We see a Roman centurion, a Jewish widow, a prophet, and a prostitute. I call these the four compass points of humanity. You cannot find four 
more extreme examples of the human condition than these four. There are two very important lessons that Jesus is teaching us in this first trip that we take with him in our job of being an apostle. The first is this, and it's very personal. If the grace of God can touch a Roman centurion, a Jewish widow, a prophet, and a prostitute, it can touch you as well. That nothing you have said, nothing you have done, nothing that you are sets you outside the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That he can be your savior as well. If you're here this morning thinking about how can I ever be good enough for God, you're not hearing the story of the gospel. God, in his grace, has all the goodness you'll ever need. The second part, lesson that we learn from this uh, story is to whom we are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are we to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to based upon this example in Luke chapter 7? Everyone. Everyone. And the church should be made up of people from every stage and condition and category of life. That's what this passage teaches us. Now, in the last half of the 20th century, such a long time ago, there was a theory of church planting called the homogeneous church unit. And that method taught this, that if you want to grow a church, then you go out and find people who are like you, that like you, that you like, and all of you are alike. And guess what? You'll find more people that like you, that you like, that you, you like, and they like, and you like. And you can tell this when you drive by church of looking at the types of car in the parking lot. They'll all be basically the same. And it really works. It's a sociological principle. People like to be with people they like and are like and, and like. Here's the problem. Who gets the credit for the sociological principle? Is it God and the gospel and the power of the gospel to transform people's lives or is it the sociological principles? Because it not only works with churches, it works with country clubs, it works with civics clubs, it works with all kinds of clubs. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ should create communities in which people who would normally hate one another now deeply love one another and are committed to one another because the gospel has changed their life. And churches should be as diverse as the community in which that church is found. And that's our goal for the Grace Presbyterian Church of Reno, that we want to be as diverse as the uh, city of Reno. And thank God that you, the same vision you have here, uh, to be as diverse as the community in which you are found. Where were the Christians first called Christians? In Antioch. Why? Because they were so diverse. You couldn't call them Jews because they were Gentiles. You couldn't call them rich because they were poor. You couldn't call them smart because they were dumb people. <laughs> you, could, you couldn't call them Asians because they were the Africans. You couldn't call them Africans because they were Europeans. You couldn't call them Romans because they were Greeks and they were Jews. And uh, you couldn't call them idol worshipers because they were also Hebrews and they're all together, all transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. You want the world to see a difference in us, then they need to see that we are a different type of community. 
And we need it now more than ever, don't we? Because we live in a society that is so isolating us and cutting us off from one another, and uh, we don't do that. We're the uncanceling culture. If you've been canceled, you belong here. If you haven't been canceled, you belong here too. Um, now turn with me to Luke chapter 8. It's interesting, Luke chapter 6, Jesus called men to minister for him. In Luke chapter 8, he calls women to minister to him. A lot of women think, you know, where's our position in the church? Let me ask you, who has the better job? The men who are called to minister for Christ and the women who are called to minister to Christ. <laughs> They're both honored and cherished and so on. Now, the next parable after Jesus, uh, Luke describes the women who are called Christ, what's that next parable in Luke chapter 8? The parable of the sower. You see how Jesus is reinforcing the lesson that he just taught us that we're the sow to seed. We are to sow the seed everywhere and we're to expect all kinds of results from all different kinds of people. You see how Roman, uh, Luke 6, 7, and 8 go together. And how Jesus is reinforcing this and how this teaches us what the ministry of our church should be and what our churches should look like. Now, if you're still drawing lines, draw a line from the top whatever side this is, down to the bottom, over here, diagonal. Because now Jesus not only shows us to whom we are to minister, he shows us how we are to minister. Uh, Jesus loved to irritate the heaven out of the Pharisees, didn't he? He seemed like everything he did just kind of violated their sacred cows. Why did he do that? Because our sacred cows need to be violated. We need to be taught that they're not true and they shouldn't be followed. And uh, Jesus is t teaching his disciples that you're not to be like the Pharisees. Why does Jesus keep telling us not to be like the Pharisees? Because we're most like the Pharisees. <laughs> That's our natural tendency. You let our heart go and we become Pharisees. Having a self-righteousness, or we become publicans and we want no righteousness whatsoever. But the point is, we would want everything or nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We don't want that. Uh, so the, 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 the Pharisees' approach to being in a right relationship with God was to withdraw themselves from a world that was sin, sick, and broken. We see this in the parable of the um, Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levi, when the, uh, go, were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, meaning they had finished their service, when they saw this man naked and left for dead, passed by on the other side. You see, they believed that in order to keep themselves clean for God, they had to avoid dirty human beings. They did a convenient job of putting a wedge between loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. But let me say this, if you say you love God and you hate your neighbor, you what? You're lying. Because to love God is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love God. Those things cannot be separated. But, but the Pharisees did a great job of separating them and blaming God for it. I'm just serving you, God. 
But what is Jesus' approach to ministry? He steps down in the sin, sickness, and suffering of this world. Let's see how he does it in all four of these stories. In the first story, Jesus is asked to go to the home of a Gentile. What's the problem? Jews become unclean when they go into the home of a Gentile. You remember when Jesus was taken to the home of Pilate, the high priest and his cohort stood. They wouldn't even enter un under the uh, portico. They stood outside uh, so they could partake of the, um, the Passover meal. If you went into the home of a Gentile, you became unclean because Gentile homes were dirty and they smelled bad. You know what Gentile homes smelled like? Bacon. And if you, got, if you went into a Gentile home, that Gentileness just, just kind of stuck to you as uncleanness. And so you had to go through all these ceremonial cleansing things to get yourself right with God again. Jesus was willing to do that, but thank God the Roman centurion said, look, you don't have to do that. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. He's willing to go to the home of a Gentile, willing to get dirty. In the second story, Jesus, seeing this uh, only son being carried out for the funeral. It says he goes up and he lays his hand on either the pyre or the coffin and he raises this man. Now, according to Davidic, Davidic law, he is now ceremonially unclean. He has touched the things of the dead. Did Jesus have to touch that shroud in which he was wrapped to raise him? No, he he uh, raised Lazarus at a distance. Of course, Lazarus stinketh, so maybe that's why he... I thought that was funny, too. <laughs> uh, but, he did, but he touches it. He goes from willing to go to the home of a Gentile to touching the things of the dead. Now, at that time, the, uh, death was considered a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. And it was something that could easily be passed on to other people. In the third story, John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask him, are you the one or shall I look for another? And Jesus says, watch, and he heals all these people. Now, we don't know that Jesus touched any of these people, but in the chapter five before when Jesus heals a leopard, he touches the leopard. So it's common practice for Jesus to touch live sick people, right? He was not practicing social distance. And I don't think he's wearing a mask. And he hadn't been vaccinated. What was he doing? He was touching live, sick people. How many, how many of you remember when AIDS came out, became a thing? That was frightening, wasn't it? Didn't know how, you're gonna, didn't know how you got it? And I remember sitting in a church with the elders, I was a guest speaker, and, and, the, and one of the th issues they said they had to decide is whether they're going to let an AIDS baby into the nursery. And I thought, if we, if we can't do that, maybe we have to build their baby its own nursery. But if we can't do that, then we might as well close down and go home. But Jesus touching live sick people He's touching live sick people. And then the, in the last story, Jesus is being touched by a sinful woman. Simon the Pharisee was right. How could a holy man allow himself to be touched 
by a woman like this. How do you picture that prostitute in your mind? Do you see her like Julia Roberts coming down the elevator, getting off in that beautiful red dress with the half a million dollar necklace around their neck? Is that what she looks like? No. She looks like Fantine in Les Miserables. When she had her teeth pulled out and her hair cut, when her dress was torn and wrinkled by the men who used her like a Kleenex and threw her away when she stunk and smelled badly, because that's what sin does to you. It makes you ugly, walking dead. That's what she was like. This is not a pretty picture. Now, we don't think this woman should be touching Jesus because she's a real sinner. We don't even like this story in the Bible. You know why we don't like this story in the Bible? Because we want to believe that the Bible is a family-friendly book. That it's PG or G. And in reality, we want to believe that God only forgives good people of good sins. But here's the problem with that. When we think of the Bible as only a family-friendly book, we don't believe that we're forgiven because none of my sins are family-friendly. And I know something about you, too. None of your sins are family-friendly. They're family-destroying. So now let's get to the heart of what's happening with the sinful woman. And I don't mean to be offensive, but you need to see the truth about this woman. And we need to see the truth about ourselves so we'll know the power of the gospel to break the sin and the blood of Christ to pay for that sin and for us to be pardoned. This whore comes in and she falls at Jesus' feet. And she kisses them and wipes them with the tears that she is crying. Do you know that she is using the tools of her trade on our Lord? And maybe you've never asked this question before, and maybe you think it shouldn't be asked in church, but this is the truth. Where had her hands and mouth been? And you cannot think of a place that would be nasty enough to describe that. That's the truth of this picture. That's why Simon said, you shouldn't let this woman near you. But before we condemn her, we just need to be reminded that our sin, our hands and mouth are dirty as well. Might be a different kind of dirt, but just as dirty. And we need just as much forgiveness. And so this prostitute is touching our Lord with her hands and her mouth. Now it gets worse than that. She has a vial, doesn't she? And everybody thinks, oh, what a wonderful picture of generosity. She's going to take this vial and pour it over Jesus. Do you know what that vial represents? It represents her life of whoring. It represents her prostitution. But there's no more beautiful picture of repentance 
and justification by faith than what we see taking place in this story. She opens up that vial of perfume, which stinks like hell, and she pours it over the feet of Jesus. That's repentance. She's emptying out her life on Christ. And what does Christ say to her? Your sins are forgiven. Now, never mess up the point of the parable. He who is forgiven much, loveth much. It's not he who loveth much is forgiven much. It's because you're forgiven that you loveth much. Now, Jesus will step down one more time when he goes to the cross, and he'll bear the sins of the world. And so dark is that moment that the earth shakes and the sky darkens. One of my favorite illustrations in the hymn and in the Psalms is that he lifted me up out of the Mari clay and put a new song in my mouth. He lifted me up out of the Mari clay and put a new song in my mouth. Anybody know that hymn? I think it's 89, or that Psalm? 69? I think it's found a couple places. <laughs> Somewhere. If you had to get someone out of a slimy pit, how would you do it? Well, I'd begin by yelling at him, hey, you, don't you know the pit is slimy down there? Get out of there. Doesn't that sound like much of our evangelism in the church today? But then you think, well, they don't care what we say. No, it's not that they don't care what they say. They don't know that you care about them that you're saying it to. You're not safe. So they would never admit that they're sinners in a, in a deep pit and need to get out of it. And that's the last thing they'd ever admit. Well, if that didn't work, I'd throw in a rope. But the Bible says we're dead and our trespasses and sin and can't do that either. So if I had to get someone out of a pit, I'd, I'd reach over, I'd find the cleanest part of their body, I'd pick them up, I'd shake them off, and I'd tell them to sing. That's how I'd save sinners. But you know how Jesus Christ saved sinners? It says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He came down. He stepped down into that filthy pit next to my lifeless body. He knelt down beside me. He wrapped me in his arms. He took my head in his hands, and then he placed his holy lips over my filthy mouth and breathed in me the Holy Spirit. That's how God saves sinners. You want to know why the world doesn't listen to us? Too much of this and not enough of this. And so we're all up here, happy, we're out of that pit. Things couldn't be better with Jesus, could they? You know, hallelujah, we're so happy, I'm just up here with Jesus singing, he put a new song in my mouth, I look at him, and he looks in the pit, and I'm up here, and I look at him, and he looks in the pit, and I'm not so happy, because what's Jesus asking me to do? That back in that pit. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. It's not in me. Now, there was another time when it wasn't in me. When was that? When I was in the pit, I couldn't get out. And now that I'm out, I can't get back in because I'm in need of what? I'm in need of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. I would say more now than I was before. 
So don't you ever, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, do it in such a way so that you communicate that you are not in more need of what you're offering them than they are in need of receiving it. In fact, you know what the gospel really is? It's a story where you just simply tell people, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Christ died for me because you don't know what I'd be like if it wasn't for Jesus. You don't know the condition I'd be in if it wasn't for Jesus. You don't know what a good Savior he is. And I just know I need him more today than I needed him yesterday. That I'm more dependent on his grace today than yesterday. And I'm telling you that you can know that grace as well in your own life. Well, one more line in our story. You go from the bottom of the page to the top. This is the unexpected results. You see, when we step down in the sin, the sickness, and sadness of this world, there is an unexpected result. Now, I wish I could tell you that following Jesus was easy, but Jesus said it's like taking up what? A cross. But when we take up that cross, here's what happened. Each time Jesus steps down, the opinion of him goes up. He's willing to go to the home of a Gentile. What does a Gentile say? You're a man of authority like me. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. Now, you may not like his Christology because it's not right. Jesus is not like him. He's not a man under authority. He is Christos Kyrios. He is Lord of all things. But that's all he knows, that he's better than a local shaman. You can heal a distance. In the next story where Jesus heals this woman's widow's son, the word at the end of that story is a great prophet has risen among the people. What great prophet in the Old Testament raised widow's sons? Elijah. Who was to come before the Messiah? Elijah. In the next story, John the Baptist asks, are you the one or shall we look for another? Now, this is interesting because Jesus is actually going to prophesy about John in silence or by what he doesn't say. He said, go and tell John what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. The gospel is preached to the poor. Some of those other passages in Isaiah and the, what? The dead are raised, but there's, what else? And the, and the prisoner is set free. Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that. You know what he's telling John the Baptist? You'll die in prison. Now, when John says, are you the one, what's that mean? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus demonstrates that he is by showing all those promises from Isaiah. In the last story, where Jesus uh, pronounces this woman forgiven, what do the people whisper around the table? Who is this who even can forgive sin? And when Jesus was on the cross, there was another Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross looking up at Jesus, and he said, surely this is the Son of God. Now, here's what I find interesting. Did, Jesus, did the people say Jesus was the Son of God when they fed the 5,000? Did they say Jesus was the Son of God when he walked on the water? Did Jesus say he was the Son of God when he healed the lepers or the blind? No. It was only when he laid down his life in death that there was a revelation that this is God. Now, here's the great irony of that. Today, what do people tell you is the proof that there cannot be an all-loving and all-powerful God? What's the proof of that? Evil but suffering. If there is suffering, there cannot be an, a good and all-powerful God. 
Well, guess how Jesus reveals his divinity? Through suffering. And guess how the divine nature will be revealed in us when we step down in the sin, sickness, and suffering of our lives? This is the ministry we pray and hope that we'll be building and establishing in Reno. There was a missionary who went to Hawaii. Tough spot. Almost as bad as ours, south of France. Some people have to suffer for Jesus. (laughs) Warm baguette every morning is beautiful. Uh, Yet uh, this gentleman went to a leper colony on the island of Molokai. It was just a sandbar on this uh, volcanic rock that was a natural prison. You couldn't climb up the rock. You wouldn't swim from it. The sharks would eat you. And uh, when leprosy hit the Hawaiian Islands, they just dumped all the lepers on this little sandbar, and they just waited to die. The sailors would just throw their belongings in the ocean and uh, push them overboard. The doctors who would come to see them would make them sit across the room and leave their medicine on the table, say, pick it up when I'm gone. Joseph Damien went to serve these people. He built schools, bandaged wounds, washed wounds, cared for them, established a church, and uh, served them for many years. One day while he's standing at his kitchen uh, table making himself some tea, he spilled some hot water on his foot and there was no feeling. He had worked with lepers long enough to understand what he had contracted. And so that morning when he stood before his congregation, he addressed them in this way, we lepers. Now, don't you think those people saw in the life of Joseph Damien in a new way and understood in a new way how Christ became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Anybody been to Washington, D.C.? Don't go east. You weren't there on January 6th, were you? Well, in Statuary Hall, each state sends two statues that represent their state. Hawaii has sent their two statues. The first is of the Hawaiian king. The Hawaiian king ascended through the totem You know, like the fish, the tortoise, the bird, all the way up to divinity. But guess who the next statue's of? Joseph Damien, who descended down into the sin, sickness, and suffering in this world and proved the power of the divine nature in the way he lived his life. Let me ask you this. Is there any evidence of grace being lived out in and through our lives that makes us any different than the world around us? My prayer is that for the sake of Christ's church and his world, that it would. And nowhere are these truths more clearly taught than at the table of our Lord.